Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist. Now, on today's show we're talking to Sam Ancliffe from Activate. We had Sam on the show a little while back and we wanted to get him on again after the Conservative Party conference to get a feel for what was going on on the grind in the conference. You know, see what was happening at some of the fringe events and uh, any policy that got discussed outside of the major headline speeches. Obviously, we wanted to discuss the speeches as well. There was some interesting and slightly controversial stuff in there, but we wanted to get a feel for what was going on on the ground and not just on the main stage. If you like the show, you can like and subscribe to us. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, you know, tell your friends about us. So let's get on with the interview. So, Sam, it's, uh, it's nice to have you back on the show. It's a pleasure to be back, mate. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I know you're you're probably uh, still recovering from conference, but um, in your, you know, in your own words, what what did you think? What did you make of of this year's party conference? So I had two impressions. Um, I mean, it was my first conference that I've attended. Okay. Uh, my first impression: I arrived quite early on the Sunday, so I didn't expect it to be heaving because I was going to be one of the first in the door. Um, but it was very very quiet for all of the Sunday, and I was very underwhelmed at the amount of people who weren't there. Um, you know, it's surprising. I don't know whether that's normal across conferences, but I was expected to see like a real thriving centre of young, well, conservatives just talking and doing things. And uh, I didn't see that on the Sunday. Um, but then on the Monday, it changed massively and I, I couldn't even get through the doors in a timely fashion anymore. Uh, so my immediate impression was probably completely wrong. Uh, but one thing that did really surprise me and um, I feel bad that it surprised me was the amount of young people there. If you were to look at the sort of the mix of people there, it was about one third were maybe on 30, another third were 30 to 44, and another third were your old grey men walking around. So I was expecting it to be a lot more of the old grey men and not so many people like myself, uh, which I thought was great to see that many young conservatives taking an active role in the conference. Yeah, that's that's always good. Um, I think that that demographic that you're you're describing there is probably quite indicative of the party membership but maybe not the the demographics who would yeah the voters essentially because um and i think part of uh part of the reason you maybe find it was a little bit quiet and and stuff i i know that um amber rudd had quite a small crowd and there were some sort of front bench members that had smaller crowds than expected but then when i know for example when boris johnson had his speech it was you you couldn't get you couldn't get in the door, um, which is which is I find quite entertaining that he he still draws a crowd. I guess he's just someone described it like a like watching a car crash is that you, you don't want to see it but you do, and maybe that's a bit harsh on Boris. He is a, he's a he's a, he's a fantastic a orator. I think, um, I think with Boris, his appeal is because he is unlike any other politician in the world, let alone UK. He's unlike so many people. And, you know, you listen to a speech from 99% of politicians and it's the same recycled stuff that you've heard over the last 100 years. You look at Boris and you know you're getting something interesting. Whether you agree with it or not, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, there's there's that side of it. I, I, I've been I've been kind of like looking at him in a way that he's 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 kind of like the UK version of of what Trump could be like if he was articulate. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> um, I can see the comparisons, to be honest. I mean, Boris is very much a populist. You know, the people that like him, they love him. Um, the people who dislike him, they hate him. You know, he's that Marmite figure. And the same thing you get with Trump. 
But I think the real difference between Boris is, besides the fact I'm not a huge fan of Trump, but I quite like Boris, um, hmm. is he he represents Britishness in such a outdated way, <laughs> and yet he comes across as such a modern person, and he appeals to people because he is such a modern person. He is the aristocrat that appeals to the working class. It's incredible how he managed to sell himself, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure where is where is mass appeal. Like, I do understand where his mass appeal comes from, but I also struggle to get it because to me he looks kind of just like a. He is just like he's an Eton graduate with in who's like career politician, and you know the, the, there are people who are like that, and I'm not going to disparage them for that choice and that lifestyle that they've they've decided to go. You know, he's he's a public servant. Fair play to him for deciding he wants to to be a you know in the public realm for for such a lengthy period of his life but and i feel like that that should disqualify him from from being popular <laughs> in a way it should it should but, but you, if you look at boris if you just look at him without even hearing him speak everything he does is so carefully calculated so his tie will always be a couple of centimeters below his belt line his hair is hairsprayed out of place. Um, I did actually hear, I don't know if it's true, but apparently one of his PAs um, told a little story about how he was in the car and his hair was perfect. And then he saw the cameras uh, when he stopped. So he messed up his hair and got out of the car with messy hair. <laughs> uh, even his collar, you know, he's got quite a wide face, so he should wear a narrow collar. But no, he always wears a broad collar. Everything he does is intentionally disheveled. So that you don't look at him and see David Cameron, who has pretty much the same pedigree of, as him. Mm. But you don't notice that because of all these little things that are just not quite right about him. And he just comes across as a bumbling fool, and then you, you hear him talk, and all of a sudden, you, uh, it's... Like but he's exceptionally like intelligent. The fox you know? in the sheep's clothing. <laughs> he is ridiculously intelligent. I can't think of many people who are even on the same level as him. Um, which, again, is probably why he's so good at this whole persona that he puts on he's almost a caricature of himself yeah it's he's an interesting interesting figure um what did you make of his um shall we say faux pas when he said when he talked about clearing the bodies out of the street in libya i just, yeah. I just felt it was in bad taste and he, like you said he he, he he does come across in a way when you, the more you think about it as a very calculated individual but then he just he makes these slip ups that are just seem so horrifying. And but I think all... that comes well. hand in hand to be honest, but he is so carefully calculated in everything he says, but I think he probably over calculates it and he can't necessarily appreciate how it might sound without the context that's going off in his head. So he's got all the context behind his message, but then not everyone else has. And if anyone else said that, I would have been far more shocked and appalled. But it's almost because it's Boris. You just look at him and be like, well, you know what? It's Boris. He always says controversial things. And that doesn't diminish the fact he was very much in bad taste what he said. But I don't know. It just, you come to expect it almost of Boris. And again, it might be what we were just saying, him playing to that character again. Do you think that's befitting of someone who could potentially be prime minister? Uh, well, I think Boris... As Prime Minister, I would hope would be a very different Boris. Uh, he's a very good statesman. He, you know, he draws in the crowds. He appeals to people. Uh, but his appeal today isn't the appeal I would hope any Prime Minister would want to 
get, if that makes sense. Mm. You know, I think he would have to become a different Boris. Much like, to be honest, we have seen a different Trump as well. He's changed tack slightly, very slightly since he became president. Oh, man, I, I, I feel like that's, that's saying that an ocean tanker has uh, gone one degree off course. That's, that's not saying a whole lot. But <laughs> um, One degree off course over many miles is a good distance. We don't know if he'll get the many miles, but anyway. <laughs> Very debatable. Um, something I wanted to actually ask, uh, going back to the sort of state of the conference, is how you felt it compared to the, the Labour Party conference, because they're obviously in a quite a bit of a you know an upward drive at the moment. The membership's pushing closer and closer to half a million people compared to the Conservatives, where they're just dropped below 100,000. And... I feel that, to me, the contrast between the two conferences, not just in the feel of them, is more in what comes out of them. So the Labour Party conference is very much about formulating policy, and there's a lot of votes taken and debates on how the party should be run, about how policy should be formatted, about you know accepting things that the front bench have maybe put forward, or the, or the manifesto, things can be referred back to the committee, and... Whereas the the conservative conference seems more like a series of speeches to me, and I feel that 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 probably contributes to the the low energy nature of it that maybe some people would would have criticised. Well, I think there's two sides to it. I mean, we've almost reversed what we should be doing. You know, the Labour Party conference was very much a conference of the winning side, even though they lost the election. Our conference was very subdued and had quite a lot of humility in it despite the fact we won you know we it should have been the opposite way around but i think because of the way you know the general election happened that's why we switched those places um but at the same time you look at the fact that you know the conservatives are in government you know so the labor party they can go up and say a lot of things uh, which you know it's is debatable about what's doable and what's not doable um you know there's been huge disparity between what they're saying they want to achieve and what they will potentially do if they ever did get into government. Whereas with the Conservative Party, everything has to be very carefully said. If we say something, we have to deliver on that. We have to do that. So it's always going to be that bit more reserved and that bit more calculated. Mm -hmm. Well, arguably, there hasn't really been much delivery. That Quite a lot of the manifesto got scrapped, but... It's been four months. You yeah, know, no, I agree with you. Quite a few, it's quite... five years of government. Yeah, no, I agree. But like, I think I think a fair a fair amount of it has been sort of pushed back on. Then there was the kind of, will they won't they on the energy price cap? I'm still not sure if they will. But um, what what policies do you think came out of the the conference that are going to be pushed forward? Was there anything? Because obviously, a lot of this of the conference was very much focused on. Oh dear, look at labour they're on the up, we need to do something about it, you know. And to me, a lot of it just seemed to be quite fear-based and kind of talking about what Labour could do instead of talking about different ways in which the Conservatives, if they wanted to, could Im improve the country and, and, you know, try and be innovative and, and forward-thinking. And, and, you know, maybe maybe just from, you know, obviously I wasn't at the conference, so... Did you see any policies there that you felt or things being discussed that you felt could really, um, you know, push Britain forward a little bit and, and you, you know, provide some sort of uh, new ideas or anything interesting that you saw on that end? 
Well, to be honest, I think the whole message from the conference wasn't really centred much on policy. I mean, there was obviously quite a lot of policy that came out, but I think the message that at least I got was it was about actually revitalising the party itself. It was a conference for the Conservatives that were there. Um, you know, Theresa May, um, at the very first day on the Sunday, met with the National Conservative Conference. She apologised for the general election three times and effectively the impression that came across that was, I'm here to serve you if you still want me. And that's what sort of set the tone for the conference. It was about getting people motivated again, giving people a purpose again, because a lot of people are very disheartened. Um, which is why I think that sort of, you know, it took away from necessarily the policy messages. But in terms of some of the policy that came out, you know, there's some really good stuff that's coming out. I mean, the first day you had the tuition fees, the reforms to tuition fees, which has, again, we've done our biggest failing of Conservatives and not communicated it very well because everyone's focusing on the fact we're not going to put it up again. But actually, we're taking two and a half million people out of paying it off because they aren't in that uh, above 25,000 bracket. Um but again, not been communicated greatly. We've got so the bracket before was just for clarification. It was twenty one thousand, wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so twenty one thousand. Okay. So for the average person uh, that's already earning over twenty five thousand, it saves them three hundred sixty quid, which isn't a huge amount. Are they planning to do anything about the six percent interest rates? Was there anything about that discussed? So the interest rates aren't being touched, um, at least now. So. What's been said is that these are what we're doing now to tackle it immediately. And then there's going to be a real review into the whole system. Uh, I'm hoping to see some real radical change in the system personally. Um, but how would you like to see it? How would you like to see it uh, pushed out? I, I was talking about this during the conference. Uh, I mean, I support tuition fees because they allow mm. working class people to actually go to university, the increasing number of places for people to go. Mm. But £9,250 is an intimidating number. Mm. Um, I mean, for one thing, I think the whole system needs rebranding. It's not a loan. It's a tax. It's a graduate levy tax. Mm. And I don't know. I'd like, I think the system needs so rebranding. Would, would you prefer it just got, it just got paid through by a slightly higher tax on like, say a certain level of income? No, because, uh, I'm not a graduate and it, this might sound really selfish, but I do not think I should have to pay for someone to go study an arts degree. Uh, if someone wants to do that vocational kind of uh, academic training, then that's their choice, that's their decision. And rightfully, they should be financially liable for that. Uh, when it comes to the STEM subjects, then it changes slightly for me. I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to at least subsidise, you know, your maths, your English and your sciences. But again, that's why I'd like to see some real reform. But I think the real message is it just needs to stop being intimidating to young people. People can't see it as an obstacle to higher education, but more as a vessel to facilitate higher education. Where would you where would you like to see the, the, the rate set at? Would, it, would you put it back to where it was before the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats raised it? Would you put it back to 3,000? You, you, do you have like a, a figure in mind? Or? I don't have a particular figure in mind because uh, whilst the current figure I think is intimidating, it does allow... A lot of room. I think if we was to reduce it, and I think it would be right to reduce it, um, not only for the political message, but also just to end that intimidation. But it would have to be a case of reform within the higher educational system. Uh, so you go to, I mean, I'm going to list off the most uh, sort of exclusive universities, but they're the best example of waste. Uh, Cambridge, Oxford, you walk around there and they have so much waste going off because they're paying 
idiots to do stupid jobs and paying them ridiculous salaries to do that ridiculous job. Yeah. And that's what people's fees are going on. Their fees aren't going on their education. They're going on some overpaid doorman. No, it's not. Not. I wouldn't even say so much as the doorman. Like vice, uh, vice chancellor, uh, vice chancellorship um, salaries have gone up exponentially since that nine thousand pound increase. And so essentially, we're funding the universities to become you know a place for high par- high paid executives when it ultimately should it be should somewhere f- it should be somewhere for education oh um, just 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 a point on your arts degree comment uh you wouldn't have been you wouldn't have been happy to fund my law degree then no a law degree different no <laughs> uh, i might no i actually do want to do a law degree myself but, uh, <laughs> and i will be paid for by the army so i'm even taking people's money for it i'm a true socialist really um, <laughs> but no well, it's about, uh, well, the idea is that you know, you, every, that those who are benefiting from a, a higher educa- a better educated workforce, is that we all benefit as a country because we attract companies who are looking for people with the best skills. Well, quite. Well, I think the benefits come in where if it's actually is generally supporting the country and making the country a better place to be. You know, your your doctors, your nurses, and even your lawyers, as much as people probably hate them. Um, but you know, they, these are people who benefit the country. Um, and I think it could be room for a bit of subsidy in there, uh, or even, you know, potentially actually do different tiers of fees. So you've got one tier maybe for STEM subjects and another tier for the less, um, stem subjects. Uh, I don't know if it's an official term for non-STEM subjects, but media studies, I think is the, the official term. Uh, Ironic, <laughs> oh, yeah. especially for me to say. Um, <laughs> no, the uh, I think so. You would you would prefer to have say a system where topics that were considered to be fundamental to economic growth would be those that were paid for either exclusively by government or subsidised by government. Say like maths, I wouldn't, English, I wouldn't say exclusive, but okay. perhaps subsidised. Okay, like um, for example, say. At the minute, there's a there's a huge need for people who are qualified in cybersecurity. So, that that like any sort of IT tech programming computing thing is that something you'd also be interested in? in? Well, quite, you know, and I think you you would never be able to do a set list. I think it would have to be a year on year list of which subjects would receive this subsidisation if it ever came in, because the needs of the country change. Uh, I mean, to be honest, we have a huge shortage of builders right now. Uh, I know you don't go to university to become a builder, but mm. it's something that whilst we've got a shortage now, that shortage might not be here next year. So it would have to be something that's under constant review to make sure that any benefit goes to the national interest, as opposed to it just gets left and forgotten about, and it's what becomes eventually one of them archaic laws that still exist for some unknown reason. Yeah, it's. Um, I think that, that definitely would be a sensible idea. I'd, I'd honestly, I, what I would love to see is... Um, so at the end of the month, we're going to be talking to uh, Richard Barbrook, who's doing a lot of work with John McDonnell and the Labour Party in terms of implementing forms of digital direct democracy. So trying to get their entire membership or even were they to get into government, the entire country or anyone who wanted to anyway, involved in formulating policy through um, doing surveys and through pushing... Uh, using this a uh, couple of different bits of software to transfer like policy questions and surveys into 
more physical policy proposals and it, it's really fascinating stuff i'm really looking forward to, to getting them to explain it, it to me but that sound really interesting yeah it, it i'm really excited actually to to get to chat to him about it but it's honestly something that i, I I'd love to get your opinion on. Would you, would you like to see more membership involvement in forming policy in the Conservative Party? Absolutely. Uh, it's something Activator actually going to be bringing in. So now we've got uh, sort of things under control and Twitter accounts behaving sensibly. Uh, we've, we're starting to like really solidify our purpose now. So we've got our three departments. You've got my department, which is the national message, uh, you know, doing interviews with people like yourself so we can get that general message out there then you've got the membership which is all about the grassroots and working with regional representatives to get campaigning but then you've got the chairman who as well as telling me and richard what to do uh he will be responsible for the lobbying side of activate and under him we hope to appoint a policy manager director we'll decide a title later but someone who's basically going to oversee policy implementation and so that person will be responsible for not just feeding back from me and Richard and what we think needs to happen, but actually then creating tangible policy about to whatever that subject might be, that we can then take to the party and petition to the party to implement and actually then give young people, especially young conservatives, that voice in government. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something I'd like to see because honestly, like I, like I mentioned, that that's something that's part of the reason I think that the conservative membership is maybe falling so dramatically and that the labor membership is rising and that the labor conference in general just seemed more energized. I think it's because, you know, things are actually happening ultimately, you know, that they're there. It's not just a, a series of speeches as, as interesting as that would be, to be honest, um, to a lot of people. It's not just a series of speeches on where the party's going. It's a, it's a real genuine fight discussion however you want to debate however you want to frame it but there's there's genuine decisions being made at the conference and i think that's part of why it, it's so i think that's why it was so full even on even on the sunday i think dennis skinner it was at the at the labor conference was uh was laughing about how he'd never seen it so full on a sunday <laughs> but at the same time you say like that you know, it was a series of speeches at the party conference. Uh, I think it was just the sort of formula for it was very different. But I mean, I didn't, barely went to any of the speeches. Um, I get very bored by politicians prattling on and on. So I spent a lot of my time in fringe events. And whilst you might think these fringe events are, you know, just a bunch of people who paid for a ticket and we want to chat about whatever is important to them. And to be honest, half of our lobbying firms trying to sell you something or to persuade politicians to do something. There were some very key debates going on. Um, I mean, there's one in particular, which I thought was amazing. And um, two of the speakers was James Cleverley and Jacobs Reed Mogg. And it was about uh, creating the moral argument for free markets. Mm. And that was very interactive. It was very much a two-way conversation between the main speakers and the audience about how we can actually make that moral argument. Because we've got the economic argument. There's plenty of facts and statistics out there we can quote from. But no one's making a moral argument. And that is, I mean, it helped give me a lot of inspiration. I'm sure I wasn't the only one in the audience that took that inspiration forward what what would be the moral argument just out of curiosity there because you know i just i'm not particularly convinced that the the conservatives at least this cons the current iteration of the conservative party have a, a particularly strong economic record um especially well, espousing their their free market ideology i don't really believe they have a free market system built at the minute but you know what what would be the moral argument for it 
Well, I'm going to paraphrase um, very loosely about what James Cleverly was saying when he said his bit on it. And effectively, before you can make the moral case for free markets, you have to look at the alternative. And I'm not talking about Corbyn socialism at this point. I'm talking if you go that next step beyond and go full, you know, nationalize everything. Uh, He's only nationalized most things. So if you look at that. I think it's it's a fair proportion of things he wants to to nationalize, given that it's mostly things that are considered very important public services but you know that's that's a that's a personal opinion but yeah keep going uh, debate mode. but so what he was saying was we need to look at what free markets allows us to have and that is freedom of choice if you remove the free markets you remove people's freedom of choice and you take the power away from uh everyone you know you take the power away from the people and put it in the hands of a government to decide what you buy what you own what you wear what you do uh that is the moral argument. It's that we are giving people the choice to dictate their own future, to dictate their own possessions, to dictate their own lives. So if you have a really, really great idea on how you can improve something, you can take that to market. You can become someone because of that great idea that you have. Whereas if you remove free markets, you don't get to do that. You would have to be a member of government to bring in your great idea. And that removes people's choice. You know, there's no choice. There's no freedom. There's no innovation. Hmm. Well, I would say that, first of all, a lot of the things that, that are uh, wanted to be renationalized are services that there isn't exactly a huge choice anyway. Um, for example, uh, with water companies, I know that in most places there is one water company and you sign up to the water company and you pay what, what they suggest. So uh, whilst I, I'm all in favor of free markets in most iterations of or in most industries that there are certain certain ones that I, I would say the government if it is run you know representing the people which you could debate it's not or it is right now but that's what excites me about the digital democracy stuff that's being discussed at the minute uh that they have the power to then you know say they don't like the way something's being run they can go okay we're going to vote you out at the next election or we're going to lobby you to do this or, you know, they can put forward policies at, for example, the Labour Party conference or, you know, were it to be the case, the Conservative Party conference. Um, what I did want to say about the discussions you were having at the fringe events, and I think that they are really important discussions, like the, it's, it's, it's great to hear that there was that sort of um back and forth going on that there was uh like genuine discussion of of the ideas of of conservatism and the conservative party because sometimes it feels a little bit like the front bench are winging it um <laughs> but i think that if there the, the 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 difference is there that those discussions were going on in fringe events at both conferences but then big issues were then being voted on at the Labour conference, but not at the Conservative one. And that is obviously the format that they've had for many years, and that's not going to change overnight. And I very much hope that uh, yourselves at Activate can make it a more uh, democratised party, because I think that you would find that the party would shift a little bit closer to the centre on a lot of issues. Like, I think that Corbyn has the the public, the majority of the public support on nationalising the railways, the energy companies, the water, uh, renationalizing Royal Mail and stopping all privatization of NHS contracts. None of those seem like radical ideas to me, but... Um... Well, I mean, I'll sort of go back to what you are saying earlier on. 
um, the you know the water companies, utilities, whatever. But they're not free markets. You know, as much as they are owned by private companies, they are not a free market. Um, particularly when you look at rail, that's subsidised by the government anyway. It's got about as much state control as you can have without nationalising. Um, personally, I would like to see it become more of a free market, but I'm also a bit of a libertarian as well as a conservative. Hmm. So you can't really draw them as perfect examples of free market economics because they're not free markets. Whereas you look at, I don't know, if you, if you want to go buy your food, you know, that is a free market at work because you have so much choice. If you don't want something, you don't buy it and everyone else doesn't buy it and then it disappears. Or if there's something that's really amazing, everyone buys that and then it becomes you know, more widely available, whatever, that is free markets. So you'd be better looking at Aldi and Tesco than you would looking at, uh, I don't know, I can't think of any rail agencies right now, but, you know, Southern looking rail, at Rail. Aviva. Southern Rail, there we go. Yeah. That's how little I try and use trains because they're appalling, to be honest. But Yeah, well, that's because they're horrendously subsidized and there is only one, technically, there's generally only one company bidding for the contract, so there's not much competition. And I do I'm agree a- that in a lot of in a lot of industries that, the competition is is necessary. What what I where I draw the line personally is where you have services that people need and can't do without, and you have services that people have the the option to choose. So healthcare people need, um, water in their house people need, power in their house people need that, that sort of idea. Whereas, okay, so you could you could even push it to I don't think that the internet should be the uh, the ISPs should be should be nationalized. But for example, the ability for different ISPs to get in and 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 work across a free market is because people people don't need internet connection as like a life necessity where they need water and they need power in their house and they need um, healthcare. Yes, it's it's very important for modern society, but there's enough different firms and there's enough ease of access for new firms to, to put themselves out there compared to industries like water or energy or even railways. And I feel that there's 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 a distinction because you say about food, you know, there's it's very easy to go well not very easy, but it's easy enough to go to your supermarket and be like, right, we want you to stock our food. Because there's loads of other food in there. You know, competition is what makes their prices cheaper. But when, you, when you're when you going to someone and be like, right, there's only one water company and I want to be the new water company in town, it's very difficult to... Because, you know, you either have to rent the pipes of the water company that are already there, and they're not going to let you do that and undercut them, or you have to put your own pipes in, and that's a huge expense. I don't know. I just I feel there's a distinction. I think you know the problem we've got like with the utilities right now is that we have a hybrid of the two systems, and we're basically taking the worst of nationalisation and the worst of free markets, and that's what you're left in the middle. We're not getting the good of either side of it. Hmm. Um, when it comes to reforming, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, if you want to be the new guy on the street in the water market, you have no hope unless you have billions of pounds already. And then why would you go into such a rather low yield business anyway? Uh, so it's a tricky one. And I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. But at the same time, there is, you know, there's ways to bring in competition into even state owned markets. Because 
you look at the NHS, and I absolutely believe that the NHS should stay state-owned and it's free of a point of use and should never be privatised. Most Conservatives do actually believe that, contrary to popular belief. I'm not your health secretary. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what? There's things that can be taken out of conf- uh, out of context quite a lot. And... I mean, his book that he wrote about how he wants to privatise the NHS. He never just... privatised No, 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 he, he, not, he but... said he saw the advantages of one, yeah. and there is advantages to be had. But, yeah, but care is not one of them. <laughs> see, seeing advantages and wanting to actually do it are two very different things. Um, but so, back on subject. Uh, so, yeah, keep the NHS as it is, but you can still introduce competition to that market. So, um, I mean, my wife has private health care through her employer. Um, they insure her for that. And that is a competitor to the NHS. But actually, whilst having that competitor doesn't work in the traditional method of lowering costs, uh, for the NHS because you know we don't pay for it directly we pay for it through taxes what it does actually lowers costs at the other end of things within the pharmaceuticals markets within everywhere else places that normally taken advantage of the NHS system well no the NHS are, has the, the power to negotiate on drug prices they do but they're not very good at it which is why by providing that competition it's actually get people who are for example if you worked for uh, Bupa as a purchasing administrator or procurement officer whatever uh, you would be taught a very different method than if you worked for the NHS as a procurement manager because their focuses are completely different. And it's only when you actually give that kind of experience, that uh, commercial acumen into the NHS, that you really do get it working at its best. Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, I I'd, I would love to see um, a serious sort of streamlining and stripping back of the of the management structure in the NHS. Um that could probably be done quite effectively by some people who, in the business community if they chose to go in and work with the government on it. What I have the problem with is the the fees that they pay to management consultancy firms um, to do it for but, them. But, but, you know, it's the same problem we were saying earlier with uh, universities. There's a lot of high-paid executives and that money isn't naturally being distributed to the care at the bottom end. Mm. You know, it's all being kept at the top. And, yeah, quite frankly, it needs completely stripping down. Uh as much as I hate to say it, but if you decide to work in a public sector organisation or within government or whatever, you're never going to get paid as much as if you work in the private sector. And the executives in the NHS need to stop trying to compete with that mm. because they need to appeal to people in a different way. We shouldn't be appealing to people financially, but for the reason many people get into the public sector because they want to help people. Well, I think that's part of what's driving a lot of people away from the NHS is the fact that at the bottom end, they're struggling to be able to help people. And that's why they can't get enough nurses in is because all the nurses are either fleeing the NHS to agencies or non-contract agencies and um, deciding that they don't want to work for the public sector. What would the NHS nurses? Um, I mean, they're not paid poorly, you know, as much as there's been such a big hype about public sector pay. Starting wage for a nurse is 22,000. I've never earned that working private sector. I've only once earned that and I was when I was in the army in the public sector. Um, after about a year, the average nurse will be on about 26,000 because they're going up both not just with that 1% pay increase, which has obviously now changed to, is it 1.17 uh, now, is it, for nurses? Uh, whatever that's now changed to. But they get the, um, they're, they change in the levels of their pay as well. So you will start off as a level one nurse and you'll gradually work it up. And it takes about a year, two years, um, about one or two increments a year that you can make. And that increases your salary dramatically. When I was in the army, I started on 16,000 
and I grew to 26,000 in six years. And that was mostly through the pay scale increases. I didn't receive a single pay increase on my salary. I just went up the pay balance. Yeah, it's it's more to do with so that's the the twenty two thousand is on a band five fully qualified nurse, but that's 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 not the sort of nurse as well. That's not the sort of nurses that are being trained at the minute. There's a lot of lot more auxiliaries being trained than there are um, actual nurses. But that's a whole different issue. Let's let's not get that. Let's yeah. not let's not go but, too deep but, into that. Well, but, the point I was trying to make about that is that there's the problem with the NHS is down to workload and it's down to the delivery it's not down to necessarily the salary uh, and you see this across the public sector in schools and hospitals everywhere in the public sector it's the workload that are putting people off as opposed to necessarily the income i think it's the workload the inflexibility of the hours and the fact that i just haven't spoken to a lot of nurses about the privatization that's going on and the kind of push towards where nurses are are they're constantly saying there's a, a shortage of nurses, especially in Northern Ireland here. But they can find the nurses who, who work for the agencies and the non-contract agencies who cost significantly more, which kind of suggests that it is a little bit about money and that after seven years of only a 1% pay increase that nurses who are well qualified to do the job don't want to work for the public sector anymore. And you but know. it's a real advantage of being an agency-employed nurse, actually, like you said earlier, the flexibility of those hours. You know, well, if yeah, you but are... that's because the NHS have implemented this e-roster system that's incredibly inflexible compared to the old old system, and the, the, it, it's very much their own fault. It's not that they can. It's not that they they can claim that this is the way it's always been because that wasn't it. It used to be down to 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 you know the sister or the matron or or you know whoever was oh. head of the ward, and now it's down to this e-roster system that's incredibly inflexible and far more complicated. <laughs> Well, I'll give you an interesting statistic because my background is in actually agency recruitment and I focus in permanent recruitment. So I didn't do the actual agency contract stuff, but uh, the main reason why people leave their job, and this is a figure across every job market, not just public sector or anything, uh, 40% of people leave their job because of their boss. That's the number one reason. And then I think it's, if I remember rightly, another 30% is because of a working environment. You know, so those are huge factors that are not being addressed in the problem right now and need to be addressed if there's ever going to be a solution. Mm. Well, hopefully, hopefully we can get something done about it. I don't know. I don't know what uh, we can start by lifting the pay cap, but we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what happens in the future. We're sort of bringing us back to to talking about um, the conference. I mentioned before we started talking about the some of the comments that had been made throughout the the conference by quite a, a number of members of the front bench, mm-hmm. uh, and one one in particular was um, our dear Home Secretary Amber Rudd, who uh, who said that that she didn't need to understand encryption to know that she wanted to to stop, basically to to regulate it, and that she wanted to do that because criminals and pedophiles used it. And not necessarily true. I use a lot of encryption, but that's because I'm paranoid. Yeah, so paranoia as well is one of the key markets for encryption. Yeah, I just, I just, I honestly couldn't believe that those words were coming out of her mouth because it could have, you, you, could have. I think it's, it, it's not only admitting her own 
gaps in knowledge and that's fine you know encryption is really complicated like i understand at a very basic level exactly how it works and and beyond that like it gets super 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 complex i i I would wager that there's a lot of people who don't really know how it works but um just to, to sit up there and and say i don't know and i don't need to know that's just the most arrogant thing that she could have said i think the choice of words were terrible i mean it's one thing that everyone needs to remember more often when it comes to politicians is that a lot of these politicians don't actually understand the positions that they are in charge of the departments they're in charge of you know sometimes you're very fortunate and you can get a former doctor as the health secretary or uh, i don't know a former spy as a home secretary but uh you know more often than not these people are just have a certain set of uh sort of the non-teachable skills you know the attributes that make up a good person in that market uh, sorry in that department so whilst her message was not necessarily wrong she doesn't need to understand it because she's surrounded by experts who know far more than she does she's just there to lead those experts however her choice of words was completely wrong in my opinion because it undermines that confidence in the whole department because people don't see the experts they see amber rudd leading the home office but I, I don't know i feel like I feel like the experts that are surrounding her must have said that just the fundamental point is that if you want to build a backdoor into systems like WhatsApp or into phones or into anything like that that involves a form of encryption, it's not just for the government. It's there for hackers. And like that that's, that's such a risk to just the, the data of, of private citizens. And I, I feel that there's either there's either two things going on here, that she's either just completely ignoring the experts and and just plying ahead with it anyway, or she's listening to them, and that they're saying that that private security companies like G4S or maybe M- MI5 or MI6 want access to data that they don't have now, and I wanted to 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 see what what you thought like do you think that it's either of those things i could uh, the, the, those are my two takes on it it's either one of those but you know what, what what do you think well i think uh and this is me purely speculating but i think the request if it was going to come from anywhere would have been from gchq uh gchq monitor pretty much everything that gets uh, exchanged across the you know across the world to be honest uh i did a bit of work for myself and reading other people's emails uh they see everything except for WhatsApp, because they're not allowed to. They don't see my emails because I use an encrypted server for my emails. And yeah, so no, that, like that's, that's, I guess that's, that's my point, is that you know, yeah. pe- people, so I it's not just WhatsApp, it's, it's any form of encryption. Yeah. Like, encryption, like if, if, if you regulate WhatsApp, people are just going to use another encrypted service. It's, it's... <laughs> so I imagine the request has come from GCHQ and similar agencies that want it. Uh, and they've probably given some very compelling arguments as to why they feel that is necessary for national security. Um, so the experts that would have been brought in to implement this policy and to help write this policy, uh, their purpose, their whole reason for being there would not have been to uh, decide whether to do or not do it, but would have been to decide how best to do it and to the best way to implement that change. So it's not going to be their place to say we shouldn't do it because a backdoor can be taken advantage of by not just our own government agencies, but also hackers. Their job is to try and find every possible way to make that an impossible thing to do. And to be honest, you know, I think 
I'm torn. Uh, the, the libertarian in me says that people should have the choice to be private. And I quite like being private with everything I do. But on the other side of things, I don't have anything to hide. I don't have any problem with someone reading my messages as long as they don't laugh at me for them. Uh, I, 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 don't, I feel like it goes down a slippery slope. Um, just the, the whole sort of we're going to regulate the internet rhetoric and we're going to you know, clamp down on certain sites that we don't like and we're going to read everyone's encrypted emails and messages. I just, I really, I, I really, but I really it's don't like the, I really don't like the direction that the rhetoric goes in because it's, to me, regulation of like the internet to me is, is this amazing, fantastic and horrifying, accurate reflection of our society. And yes, okay, more extreme views might be magnified, but they also might be just brought light to in ways that we wouldn't see in day-to-day interaction. And to attempt to to regulate what people are, are putting out there, in my mind, is a regulation of free speech. Because if ideas aren't allowed to be put out there, they and be challenged and be, you know, told they're wrong essentially if they are if it's if it if they're really horrifying you know bigoted racist and any form of, of view that just isn't is like fundamentally objectively demonstrably incorrect has to be allowed to be there to be challenged and that if you're if you're attempting to to push those ideas further underground and just like they're, they're not going to go away is my point, and I just I really don't like the direction that the rhetoric's going in. And like well, like you mentioned, the libertarian in you is uh, is probably the side I would uh, support on this issue. I think you've got two ways to look at it. Uh, I mean, the whole regulating the internet thing is nonsense. You can't regulate the internet because of the very essence of way the internet works. Uh, I mean, what we see when we go on Google is not the internet; that is just a collection of servers that are made publicly available. Mm. The true core of the internet is found in, you know, the dark net or whatever you want to call it. And that's the point-to-point connections, which can never be regulated. They can never be stopped. They can never be controlled um, unless it's Silk Road and we break down the doors of the guy's houses. That's literally the only way to stop this. Mm. So actually, what we're not, we're not looking at regulating the internet and we're not looking at restricting freedom of speech. Everyone has the right to that's, say what they want to say. That's However, you do not... But you do not have the right to the privacy of your speech. That is what is being said. And that brings a whole new argument to yourself of whether someone should have the privacy of their own words. Um, but I think the only privacy anyone is truly entitled to is the privacy of their own thoughts. If you decide to type something, if you decide to say something, if you decide to write something, then you are giving that to the public. Whether you're doing that in an encrypted WhatsApp group with you and your mum, or whether you're doing that in a, I don't know, a terrorist cell that are planning something a bit nastier. By putting it in the public domain, you offer it up. And that's where I see all my personal communication. Once I click, once I type that on a keyboard, it is no longer my property. It then becomes a property of everyone. Would you say that's the same with a post, with the le- with a letter? Yeah, quite, you know. Um, I mean, you're naive if you think you haven't had your letter open and a way to deliver it at some point. Oh, no, I uh, agree. But I, I would disagree with the with the idea. But um, you know, I'm just, I'm, I feel like... But- there's, there's a well. There's putting things out there on the internet, and there's writing a message that's meant sacrifice. to be private. But... It's a sacrifice that has to be made sometimes. I think for security, though. Uh, yeah, but then they're talking so... about using this control of the internet to, to, to you know, try and prevent terrorism. When arguably, our 
our foreign policy is a much bigger in cause of of uh sort of anti-british sentiment that's that's arisen in in terrorist circles rather than you know our free use of the internet like that's just a tool that's but, not know, the but, cause uh, of but it's not amber Rudd's place to change foreign policy you know she has the tools that she is allowed to work with and she has a situation she finds herself in so she's using her tools to combat it to the best of her ability but theresa may came out post uh the manchester attack and said we are going to regulate the internet and and to be honest all the rhetoric that they're they're coming out with kind of just paints this picture of a you said that yourself that yes they can't regulate the internet and i agree with you it's a ridiculous statement but do you not think that paints a picture of of a government who either doesn't understand what they're talking about or doesn't care to understand no, I think it's different. Uh, I think for people like you and I, who probably have a far above average stand- understanding of the way the internet works and the basic essence of it, the average person does not have much more of an understanding of it beyond the very simple of how to use it. And therefore, if you overcomplicate the matter and overcomplement the sound bites effectively in the communication of it, all you're going to do is you're going to go over a lot of people's heads. And then people hear a lot of words that we don't quite understand, a lot of concepts we don't quite understand, and people get scared. I think what we've found with the government now simplifying that message is you've got people who understand it a bit more who are getting scared because they are reading into it a lot more than they need to be. Well, I would I would honestly prefer that the political discourse was discussed in, in much more nuanced and, and complex terms, but, you know, that's obviously not quite the... Uh, well, that's the job of Parliament. Parliament's job is to discuss the details. Well, I guess I guess we'll see if if the if any sort of proposal ever comes to comes oh, to power on that. Oh, this bounce is some tech geek that'll pick up on it and pick it to shreds once we're in there. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> not so convinced with the House of Lords. I don't think many of them are very techy. Mm, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so moving on, then um, you, we were talking about sort of sign, sign bites, which I feel sort of leads us naturally to Twitter. Um, mm. Since you've got con- control back of your uh, of your Twitter feed, there was I've been I've been watching intently, uh, given the discussion we had before about a different way to engage young people, mm-hmm. and there's been things I've I've uh, I've been quite you know supportive of things that you've been putting out there and things that I feel are n- not so great. So to, like I'll, I'll start with the positive. Like I really enjoyed the the way you were talking about. You were looking for policy, like ideas on how people should, or how the government should tackle the housing shortage. And you know, you got some really interesting responses, and you got a lot of trolls. Trolls, yeah. <laughs> but that's 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 Twitter. So, <laughs> um, so I really enjoyed like that's that that sort of thing, and I'd, I'd honestly love to see more of that from you. Like, I feel like that's a much, I feel like that's a really useful way of using your your social media accounts. What I I haven't enjoyed personally is some of the more divisive rhetoric that's been pushed in that it to me some of some of your twitter feed just looks like an extension of the conservative party twitter feed which we kind of discussed last time was not the way to win over voters so mm-hmm. you know there was things like um even labor knows labor economically dangerous choice with the talk about the run on the pound which we can get to and there's like everyday everyday labor beginning to sound more like a dictatorship and waiting and there was the kind of swingometer where is jeremy corbyn on brexit or where labor on brexit and personally i just feel like that's kind of gaslighting and kind of just just not the way 
I, I just don't feel it's compatible with the, what you were talking about before and trying to find a new way to discuss conservative ideas. I feel like that's just, you know, preaching to the crowd of the converted. Well, you know, but we've got to preach to both crowds. We've got to preach to the converted just as much as we need to preach to those who aren't convinced yet. Yeah, but the converted, uh, the converted will agree with your with a more nuanced point. But the converted might not necessarily agree with activate. You know, we need to get more conservatives on board as well and try to get build our own following and build our own platform so that we can have more impact. But no, I think you are right in the essence that it is far better for us to have that more interactive discussion and to become almost that lobbying firm for the party and to have that direct line so that people can communicate with the party, which is where I want us to be one day. Um, but at the same time, we've also got to have a bit of fun. You know, there's been some rather amusing stuff coming out in Labour policy. If I can't poke a little joke at it every now and then. Well, uh, I think I think that the run on the pound thing was was kind of ironic from a, a government whose record with with the with the pound is not good. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's it. That becomes an argument on Brexit, though, really. Well, it's not so much an argument on Brexit. Like the the pound has has declined significantly against both the dollar and the euro since 2010. Like and consistently, not just in the last year. Um, hang on, let me get the figures up here. I've got them here somewhere. Yeah. So in in 2010, the pound was at 1.24, and now it's down around 1.13. So that. Y- yeah, you there was there was a period where it was sort of going back up and it was looking much better against the euro and 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 now it's collapsed again. And um you know, as much as you can blame Brexit for it, it's you know, the Conservative Party put us in this position and the same against the dollar, the pound was around 1.55 dollars to the pound in 2010 and now it's down to around 1.34 I think that is. And it's like to to cons- essentially my point is i think it's ironic for the for the conservatives to poke at labor for considering the idea that uh, an agenda that hasn't really been considered in britain for 30 plus years because of in my mind 30 30 plus years of of neoliberalism um that if they're preparing people to to take a bit of a shock from that i think is incredibly foresighted and and very well prepared for them to do it. Whether you think that that's, you know, good that they're 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 even having to consider that is another thing. But the fact they are considering it compared to a government that kind of threw us into a referendum with no real plan as to what was going to happen next, I feel like it's it's kind of. I think no, you've got a good point. I mean, uh, you know, we would want any government to sort of plan for any eventuality. Um, but I think what was the amusing part was how much of a big deal they decided to make of it. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't include that in any speech. You know, <laughs> you know, that's not something I would stand up to the Labour Party conference and say, you know what, we're prepared in case this all goes wrong. If that's just something you have in the background ready to roll off. That is, it was poor publicity on their part and poor, poor PR, you know. Uh, that's what was more amusing about it. In fact, they were bragging about the fact we were prepared for it, as opposed to just having that contingency plan in place. Well, I think, you know, I think the, the government has a contingency plan for a zombie apocalypse. You don't see them standing on a platform bragging about it. Maybe that would bring in the young voters, all the college of the it, And that is generally a thing, you know. Um, it's actually a training exercise you have to do in Sandhurst. Um, you basically update the policy every time you go for a Sandhurst intake. That's fantastic. 
I knew I knew it was I didn't know it was a policy in Britain. I knew that America had one that the, the Pentagon had, had put together as again like a training exercise and then all the conspiracy theorists jumped on it as uh But again it's there and you know they'll use it if they need it. Well yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think they, <laughs> but, they but that's yeah. that's my point though. It's you know, it, the policy is there. You don't need to brag about it if it's a contingency. You know, I, you talk about what you're going to do, not what you hope will not have to do. I think that the, it was part of a wider point um, in terms of the the fact that they were being very prepared for big business to be combative and that they were in talks with business uh, businesses about how they were going to go about things and they were in talks with the civil service about every possible scenario. And I think it was them trying to illustrate their preparedness. But I do agree, it was probably not the smartest thing for them to say. <laughs> Um, one thing I've learned massively over the last six weeks is try not to say anything at all I and mean, then you might not get laughed at for it yeah but silence isn't good either no no so you do have to say some things but, but not everything you don't have to say everything that's true anyway for just to, to sort of bring us towards the, the end of the chat here I just wanted to add there was a couple of things I wanted to ask about um, Theresa May's speech as the, mm-hmm. at the close of the conference um what did you make of the speech um what did you make of of lee nelson handing her a p45 well i'll uh, go to what i made of a speech last if that's okay just uh, because my every point in what went wrong with it is going to lead towards my conclusion okay so i mean you got lee nelson being his typical unlikable self i mean it's so one thing that the left and the right can agree on is how unlikable he is as a person oh, no i think lee nelson's hilarious i thought oh no i no. thought like i think he's just he's just a funny funny like he's in not he's in no way being sick like he he is this isn't even anywhere near the first thing he did the he's the guy who threw dollars at set bladder um, yeah. in the fifa press conference which was hysterical he was handing out um golf balls with swastikas on it like a trump golf course event <laughs> Oh man, he's he like. I'll put it this way: you could not pay me to go see his tour. Oh, I don't, I don't know if I'd go and see his tour, but I think his publicity stunts are are absolutely hilarious. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, we digress a bit. But so I think you know his stunt was. You probably find hilarious. I found rather poor taste, uh, at least poor timing anyway. But you know what? That's him. That's happens. If you're a public figure, you are always at risk of that happening. Mm. And the more important you are, the more likely it is to happen. I'm not sure how he managed to get so close. And how no one, like... I I have heard rumours he was posing as a journalist, but he had a party member pass. Mm. Now, I'm not convinced he's a member of a party uh, by any means, but, uh, but also you have to be endorsed by someone. So how we got through security to get a pass anyway... I don't know, but I heard he had a camera in his hands and he was down with all the uh, other reporters at the front and that's how he got as close, but still massive security failing. Um, but yeah, so I think him doing that, you know, that's by the by. I think how the Prime Minister reacted. You see so many people with they're putting that kind of situation and they freeze, you know, panic, you know, they stop blabbering and, you know, falling to bits. No, Theresa May looked at him, smoked at him, took it off him, popped it on the floor, cracked straight on. You know, she barely gave him the attention that he doesn't deserve to be honest he didn't deserve any attention for it um i'm amazed he was up there for quite as long as he was without someone dragging him off the, but... the, this is my point i'm not i'm really i'm not sure cause i think she was half expecting him to for someone to take him away and they just sort yeah. of like he just he just still, stayed yeah, yeah. <laughs> no one yeah. no one said a word well yeah she did just ignore him know. for a good 30 seconds and he's still there waving it which yeah. but you know that was i think the way she handled it was good you know she showed that she wasn't shaken by it. She wasn't put off by it. And she carried on getting her message out there. Yeah. 
I think, uh, to be honest, I, f- I just find it really, really hysterical that she, she took her P45. Um, <laughs> I had quite a lot, I had quite, quite a lot of chuckling over that, but, um, but I think, but that whole speech and, you know, to go on to the question of what I made it, it was a perfect metaphor for what she was trying to say. You know, she had Lee Nelson, she had the horrible coughing fit. Uh, she had the bloody message falling apart, literally, uh, <laughs> to our eyes. You know, those are all things that are, well, largely unpreventable, um, or at least from her perspective anyway. I think the conference stuff probably could have prevented the sign falling to thought. But, you know, but the way she carried on, she was going through adversity. She was going through a challenge, and she carried on. Uh, despite the fact she could even barely speak, uh, she did not miss a single word of her entire speech. She got every single word out there. She got a message out there. Uh, and what you saw from the audience as well was amazing. You know, when she was absolutely dying they gave a standing ovation to give her that time to have a sip of water to have uh, the chancellor's cough sweet and you know that was the only thing you give away for free yeah but <laughs> and again, you know she came out with some rather witty remarks about the whole situation she showed her human side but more importantly what you saw there was a party that was i think for the first time since the general election truly united in their purpose and that was supporting each other to get that speech out there and to get that message out there. I think it was brilliant, to be honest. And I felt the speech was full of a lot of sort of empty rhetoric in that she, that a lot of it is um, kind of, it was either we are not Corbyn, it was ideas that Ed Miliband had put forward Um a couple of years ago, like the energy price cap, this idea of the British dream. They're, they're both ideas that, that um, Ed Miliband was uh, was championing, championing in 2015. Um, the talk of more council housing being built was something that Labour were talking about during the election. And I don't know, I just I felt like it was very much, a, I just felt it was light on any sort of, you know, fresh message or anything. But I think that's a point. It was getting back on message, something we haven't done for a long time. You know, the whole general election. Yeah, but that's, to- that's, that's been the, the, that's been what people have been talking about for the, for, for well yeah. over a year well, now. It's like, yeah, let's get, well, let's I mean. get on we with the job. To- but like, you keep having these resets. It's like, okay, you know, the, the general election is going to be our reset. Let's get back on message. And then it wasn't, it fell apart. And then the there was there's been a couple of different speeches that have meant to be like yes let's get back on message. There was the Florence speech that was meant to be the big one, and that was completely undermined by Boris Johnson ultimately in the press. And and then the conference is going to be this reset. And then to a lot of journalists and a lot of people that the conference has been all about Boris and Corbyn. It's not been about Theresa May. And I feel that to me she doesn't quite have the authority within the party because of the general election result to really stamp a message of let's genuinely get on with what we want to do and i feel that that's really plaguing her at the minute well i think you know um i mean sort of like the whole resetting the message thing you know when you look back at when Theresa May first took over as prime minister and the you know, sort of subsequent ones, when she was at the height of her popularity, you know, we reached a peak of like 63% approval ratings, I believe, at one point. Mm. You know, that was when she was talking about correcting those ba- imbalances uh, across equality, you know, helping with just about managing, making the fight for injustices. That's what she was talking about then. And that's what she's now talking about again, because that is her. That's what she wants to achieve as prime minister. 
What we saw during the general election was Brexit, 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 strong and stable, strong and stable, strong and stable. That wasn't Theresa May. That was a bunch of advisors who didn't have a bloody clue what they were doing, to be honest. So getting back to the message, yes, I think with the overshadowing, uh, Boris is always going to attract more media attention because, you know, it's Boris. The guy walks around like he's on his way to an insane asylum. You know, of course, <laughs> he's, going, of course he's going to get more coverage. And that is Boris's position. But you know what? She can use him as an asset. I don't think it's undermining her own authority. I think it's brilliant because he is bringing, he can bring to attention uh, things that she never would be able to because people will publish something just because Boris's name is on it. Because, but, because the media know what drawing the crowds. They know what drawing the readers. So Boris can get those messages out in support of the Prime Minister. And I think that's what he said. I don't think he's undermined her at any point. I think he's just, you know, Boris being Boris and he's getting his own view and his own interesting way of phrasing things. I don't know. To me, to me, he kind of has to go from the cabinet. Um, just, just as a respect to collective cabinet responsibility. But then that was drilled into me by my politics teacher. Maybe I'm a bit obsessed with it. But I feel like it's kind of fallen apart since since Brexit in terms of all that. Like, yes, okay, the the Brexit vote was a free for all on you know your own opinion within the cabinet, and then post the result, you're meant to all be quiet and get on with it. And I feel like that just really hasn't happened. And I feel that Theresa May's deference to your advisors and to what the party wanted to push the message in the election about Brexit, Brexit, Brexit was a a proof that she either doesn't have the confidence or the ability to push her own message. And, and, I think that's one way you could look at it. But on the other side of things, Linton Crosby was paid, I think, £2 million to run the election campaign for a party. Hmm. Uh, so at the same time, if you're willing to invest in that level of expertise that are worth bloody £2 million of six weeks' work. Um, I can only dream of being about that. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're not willing to defer to that expertise, then if anything, you're being stubborn and you're, you know, you're not accepting them expert opinions. just turns out on this occasion, the experts were wrong. Uh, I don't think that's a failing of a prime minister. Um, but at the same time, it's a lesson that does need to be learned by the prime minister to perhaps have more confidence that her message was working and it shouldn't have been changed quite as much as it was. Well, I think we'll disagree on on the uh, the implications of that the, the change in message. But the the last thing I wanted to ask you was uh, something I saw. I think it was BuzzFeed going around asking, um, or maybe it was the BBC. I honestly don't remember. I think maybe that's bad. I I can't tell the difference. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, I think this... BuzzFeed is getting a bit more serious these days. Though. No, their their political coverage has really, really, really stepped up in quality. To be honest, uh, their their podcast on investigative journalism is really fantastic. And uh, it's called The Tip-Off, if anyone wants to look it up. Uh, but yeah, essentially, one of them was asking what the Conservative Party stands for. No, the modern Conservative Party as it is. What would you say that it stands for? Yeah, I think that is a message that has been lost, to be honest, um, because it's not very clear even to members within the party what we stand for. Mm. But at the same time, we're never going to have that clear, concise message that you'll find in other parties because of the nature of conservatism. You know, there's so many different branches about it. But if, I mean, if I was to tie it down into just a few words, yeah. conservatism stands for opportunity and to give everyone equal opportunity. And that's the only way you're going to correct imbalances in this country. Okay, that's that's an interesting take on it. Um, I'm not 100%, I, I'm sure I would agree that that's what the modern Conservative Party stands for. But um, if that's what, what act, you would activate would like them to stand for, I would... Um, 
you know, be supportive of that message, even if it's just someone a bit better to argue with. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, thanks very much for for coming on the on the podcast again, Sam. I was uh, keen to get your thoughts on on the conference. It's always been a pleasure. Yeah. And uh, hopefully, we'll get you on at some point in the future. Yeah, I'm sure you won't get rid of me anytime soon. Uh... <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can share us on Facebook, Twitter, across social media. Tell your friends about the show. Subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we have interviews with Dr. Kitty Hayward from the Queen's Policy Unit. We're going to be talking to her about the border issue in Ireland over Brexit. And we've got an interview with Harry Phone from the UK Libertarian Party. So be sure to subscribe if you want to hear those. Until next time, thanks for listening.